Have you ever stopped to just think about the various factors that have influenced and shaped who you are, what you are like, or who you will become? I mean, just think about it just for a moment with me. Your genetics play a rather major role in what, who you become, what you are like. Whether you're tall or short or anything in between, it's going to affect what your life looks like. But your culture plays a major role. The language you speak, where you grew up, are all significant factors in who you become. Your parents and what kind of a home you had, whether they were great loving parents or whether they were very hard on you or anything in between, your, your home as a child, your, your parents play a major factor in who you are and what you are like. But what about opportunities? I mean, the truth is that if you live in a, in a more developed country, you're going to have many more opportunities than in lesser developed countries. And then there are many experiences that you go through for the better or the worst. There are many different experiences that you had, many of them you had no control over. When you start thinking about who you are and what you are like, factors like genetics and environment, so those two major headings, you have exactly zero control growing up. Zero control over your genetics and even of your environment. And yet, there's a third factor that will greatly impact who you are and what you are like and what kind of a person you will ultimately be. And the third factor you do have control over, you do, and that is your choices. The choices that we make have a major role to play in who we are. And even though those choices are made within our genetics and our environment, the reality is that we still are accountable to our God and to each other for our choices. You see, none of us have perfect genetics. I mean, I'm really close, but no. None of us. We all have our physical shortcomings. All of us do. And so no one in this room has perfect genes. And none of us have had perfect environments. None of us. All of us have had different issues or problems with our environments. And yet it's also equally true that none of us have made perfect choices either. We've made foolish choices. We've made sinful choices. We've made sometimes some really dumb choices in life. And all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us trip and fall. Every one of us messes up. I'd venture to argue all of us in some way is messed up. We're not perfect. We're not in heaven yet. We are all sinful, and we are all broken. And every one of us approaches God the same way, desperate. We approach our God desperate for his healing and his restoration, his salvation. We approach him desperate for his grace. And this restoration is something that only God can accomplish. We cannot restore or heal ourselves. Through the power of His Spirit, He is shaping His people to reflect His character and His glory. 
And so when our Father, when God looks at you and me, He loves us too much to leave us where we are. He doesn't want us where we are. He wants to grow us and to shape us to further reflect His character so that we can then make choices that are truly wise and in daily life reflect, display His glory and be the image bearers that were made to be an image Christ. So today we're going to ponder this thought of being shaped by the Word, because God's Word indeed does shape His people. And we're considering this shaping done by God's Word through His Spirit as continuing in the preaching series called Restoration. We're seeing the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. So throughout this study that we began in September, took a break for Christmas that we're back on now here in January, we've seen in this study, we've been kind of following God's people in the 5th century B.C., people that were in exile in modern-day Iraq, in Babylonia, and they were restored back to the land of promise in Judah and in the capital, Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt that had been torn down by the Babylonians. The Jerusalem walls to provide security were fully restored and rebuilt. We saw that last week with the leader Nehemiah. And so now that the city is rebuilt... God is now turning his attention to restore the hearts of his people. And so let's continue by reading in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we will be reading the whole chapter, and the words will also be on the screen. And all the people gathered as one man into this square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And they read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and the right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Cherubiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Odiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. 
do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for each for themselves on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This powerful text, this, this narrative, see, this Bible's story is emphasizing the centrality of God's word in the life of his people. So you see here in verses 1 and 2, it's describing how all the people of God had come together. It says men, women, and even children, those that could understand, gathered together, it says, as one man. So talking about, it's talking about unity. They all came together, and it says, in the public square of the city. And they cried out to the priest Ezra to come before them and to teach them the word of God. Now, you should note that they could have met in the temple court, but they didn't. They met in the public square by a gate. So this massive gathering of, of everyone that's come together is meeting not at the temple, but in the middle of the city. And so God wanted his word proclaimed everywhere. Everywhere he wants his word proclaimed, including in a zoo. It's not limited to a proper building. It's the people of God are gathering together for his word to worship him, and this pleases him. And it says, notice it says that this gathering took place on the first day of the seventh month. Now, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was a very important month, a very special month full of different festivals. And so if you, if you read on your own time, Leviticus 23, it describes how a holy gathering was, was called to take place where they would read the word on the first day of the month, which is what they're doing here. Ezra is on a platform reading the word publicly. Now, on the 10th day of that month was a day of atonement or Yom Kippur. 
which was the day where the high priest would enter into the most holy place and offer sacrifice for all the people. So it was a very important time. And on the 15th of the month was the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles that you, we just read about. So it's a very important month with feasting, celebrating, hearing the word, and, and praising God for redemption that they don't deserve with the priest going in to offer sacrifice. So the wall was finished. We saw this last week towards the end of the sixth month. And then just days later was the first of the seventh month. And so with all these festivals, this celebration, focusing on who God is coming up, they're hungry for God's word. And they're calling for Ezra. Hey, Ezra, come preach to us. And so they want to hear it. They want God's word to direct them. They're, they want God's word to be what guides their lives. And so this gathering is really showing that they had a very deep desire to hear and to obey God's word. So verse 1 tells us here that Ezra, the priest, that he brought us the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. So it's saying here that Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Moses wrote it. So it's the book of Moses. But it also says that the Lord gave. And so which is it? It's both. Moses wrote it. God inspired it. Moses wrote the word of God. And so this is where we understand that the entire Bible written by humans, but inspired by God. And so when you hold your Bible, you are holding, holding the very words of God. And so we submit ourselves to its authority because this is who wrote it. So it is our final authority. So verses 3 through 4, continuing the story, it says that Ezra stood on a very says, high wooden platform that they had built for this occasion. And there's 13 men, six on one side, stood on the right, on the other side of Ezra. So they're on the platform, and Ezra is reading, it says clearly. So he wasn't just reading the Bible as though he is a robot, and it's hard to understand sometimes when you read the Bible and not put any emotion no, he was reading it clearly with appropriate pauses and with, with inflection. And he was trying to read the Bible well. Oftentimes I think we just read the Bible as though like we're so nervous to mess it up and we don't read it like what it is. The Bible is literature. And so we should read it as such. Inspired literature, but read it with, with emotion and with appropriate pauses and read it like what it is. God's word given to us. And so he was very clear in his reading of the word. And then it says that there were another 13 men that were in the crowd that were explaining what Ezra was reading. So I don't know exactly how it happened, but this is what it does say. Ezra's on the platform, and he's reading the word, and there's other men that are helping to explain it so I imagine he was reading and he would pause and then they would explain it to those that were in the crowd. He would just keep reading more. So this is a, a form of preaching, if you will. And it was from daybreak, so from dawn, around 6 a.m., it says to midday. So this was a very long sermon. This wasn't a 45-minute sermon. This is like a, at least six-hour experience. And it says that they were all standing up and it says they were all very attentive, including children. It's all those that 
could hear. And as they're hearing God's word being explained to them, it says that they cried out, amen, amen. They lifted their hands up and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So you see this, this is the response. So Ezra is reading clearly and the people are understanding what God's word is saying. So I'm going to reread to you a couple of important verses in, in, in Nehemiah 8, verses 9 and 10. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Powerful. So what you see here is their response was sorrow, seeing their own sin. But Nehemiah and the Levites say, no mourning, no weeping. Instead, they're called to enjoy and to rejoice in their God, for the joy of the Lord is their strength. That they would have an opportunity later to mourn, but this day was for celebrating. So verse 12 says, there was great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the word. So understanding God's word led to great rejoicing. And then verses 13 through 18, the last paragraph in this chapter, describes how God's people celebrated this feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. The tabernacle was a tent, if you will. And so they had opportunity to, to celebrate this important festival. Now, the feast of booths was a reenactment and a celebration, a commemoration of when Moses had led the Israelites this is a thousand years before Nehemiah and Ezra. So a thousand years earlier, Moses had led God's people out of slavery from Egypt into the wilderness, and for 40 years they were waiting to finally go home to the promised land. And in those 40 years, they lived in tents, in booths. And so this is a celebration of how God had delivered them, how he is their redeemer and provider, and he's their sustainer. And so now they're reenacting that as an act of worship and saying, we're going to live in booths, in these tents for these seven days of this festival to praise God, remember what he had done to save them. So the text says that the entire city was covered in tents, the whole city. It says rooftops outside their homes, in their court, on the road, in the temple court, in the public square, everywhere you looked was the whole landscape covered in tents. These booths with olive branches and these, these, these temporary shelters, and they lived there for a week. And so it was this, this unique reminder of how God had saved them. And then there was this feasting. He says, eat rich food and drink good drink and celebrate and taste the goodness and see that God is good. And so go taste good food as a picture that tasting of God's goodness is real. And so there's this feasting and celebrating, but don't forget the emphasis of the word. 
The word is central, and it's not just good food. It's far more than that. Verse 13 says that heads of fathers of houses met with the Levites and the priests to study the word. So you have fathers that are going, sitting with the teachers and learning, being trained so they can do what? Go home and teach their children. Lead their families spiritually. Recognize their calling to represent God to their children. And so you have men that are hungry to learn. They're sitting down and they're learning. So there's this, this constant emphasis on the Word, and it says daily they were reading the Word. So the last verse and a half here, verse um, 17 and 18, it says, and there was very great rejoicing. There's a theme again, rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last of the seven days, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So they all got together again for more of the same, more of the word, more of learning about who God is. And so what you're seeing here is profound. But what can happen to us sometimes when we read the Old Testament is we read it. We say, oh, okay, that was a nice story. It's good. Um, let's go ahead and call worship team up and let's sing a song and we'll have lunch. It was great. A good story, a good example to follow. You know, good moral Old Testament story. But that's not what this is. That's not what Nehemiah 8 is about. There's more than an interesting or, or a nice story to follow an example. What you're seeing here with the Old Testament and in, in this text for today, it's pointing directly to Jesus. Everything points to is fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his gospel of grace to save us from our sin. This is pointing to that. And everything is designed in the Old Testament to grip our hearts to further treasure, value, worship Jesus. And so John Piper says it well. He says, God does not exist for the sake of our enjoying biblical stories. Say that again. God does not exist for the sake of our enjoying biblical stories. Biblical stories exist for the sake of our enjoying God. And so these biblical stories exist so that we can then treasure Jesus. And so when you have the people of God gathering together to hear the word, not bored, not looking at their sundials, they were not wondering, when is he going to finish? He's going a little bit long. They were hungry to hear from God. They were desperate to hear from their God in heaven. And so what you're seeing here in the people of God with Ezra and Nehemiah in this era is deep inside of them was a hunger to know God. Because that's where God is revealed is through his word. And so hunger for the word is a hunger for God. Because we know him through his word. And when we know God, we respond with says, your great rejoicing. So that is the narrative. Let me give you the primary truth so that we can make sense and apply it. What we're seeing here is that faithful teaching of God's word produces joy, which is our strength. It will be here on the screens in a second. 
is the main idea is that faithful teaching of God's Word produces joy. That's what we're seeing here. This repetition, great rejoicing, great rejoicing. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we're seeing here that spirit-led, empowered, well-done, faithful teaching and preaching leads to joy, which is our strength. But notice the sequence. It's important, the sequence here from this powerful story. The next slide is faithful teaching is where it begins from God's Word, and that, that leads to joy, and then that leads to strength. And so living in this broken world, maybe it's just me, but living here can be exhausting. It can. I look forward to heaven. I really do, and I love the life God's given to me. I love my wife and my children, and serving you, it is a tremendous privilege. So no offense, but I can't wait till I get to heaven. It's going to be so much better. It can be, at times, it's truly exhausting to live on this side of heaven, and what's, what's coming is so much better. See, sometimes it's hard for us to really focus on Jesus I'm being honest, and I doubt it's just me, but sometimes it's hard to really have our minds and hearts focused on Jesus because of internal desires. So inside of us, there are sometimes sinful desires that are just there because we're still sinners. But not even just the internal stuff, then there's even the external distractions. We talked about that last week, on being distracted. And so between our own internal stuff and the outside world and life's distractions, it can be hard to really follow Jesus with all your heart. And so we need strength. We need God's empowering to keep pressing forward, to keep persisting. We need the strength of God to help us to keep looking at our sin and not denying or minimizing it, but to be honest about our struggles and say, God, help me. Change me. Change me. We need help. We need his strength to help us to keep loving our wives. And wives, keep loving your husbands and raising your children. You need the strength. You need the strength to keep sharing the gospel with those around you that are far from God and don't know forgiveness and don't know joy. We need the strength to have that vision, to not lose it, to not let it erode. We need his strength. We need, we need God's empowering to lead our families well, his empowering his strength to help keep serving the church and serving the world with, with the humble heart. To live truly healthy lives requires his strength. And so we look at this graphic again, and we're just looking at this, this progression. If we want to work backwards just for a moment, the only way that we're going to have strength, that's what we need. We need his strength to keep following him. The only way that we're going to have that strength to keep following Jesus is we need joy deep inside of us. There has to be a joy that's coming from God's work in us. But the only way to have that joy is to know God. You have to see his glory and his beauty and see more value in him than in the world. 
And so it all begins with you have to know God through his word. And then what will happen is more you know him, see his beauty and his worth, it will result in more joy. And then that joy is your strength. It will sustain you. But it begins with knowing God. I didn't just say knowledge of God. I didn't just say knowledge of the Bible or of theology. I said knowing him leads to joy that leads to strength. For us to be a healthy church, and that's what my heart's desire is, that we be healthy. I don't care about size. I don't, we'll, we'll get more chairs if it gets bigger. If we have less people, then we'll take some chairs out. Our goal is not size. Our goal is to be healthy. For our church to be healthy, we must reflect God's character, which is revealed in his word. So the church... Our church finds its purpose and its life when we display God's word, which reveals his character. So ECC Off Island, our job is to listen to God's word and then echo it to Abu Dhabi. That's what we do. That's why we're here. And so faithful teaching of God's word produces joy which is our strength. And so my goal as, as your pastor is to feed you. And I'm just as flawed as you are and as much in need of God's grace as you are. But my role is to show you what God is saying in his word, not my opinions, but what his word says. And then beg God that you'll be so hungry for his word that you come and you feel like you had a, a meal, spiritually speaking. Not, not the biscuits. The kids eat those too quickly anyway. I can never get one. But feed you spiritually. And then pray that you're hungry to go back to the Word every day at home and devour it for yourself so that you will know God let me ask you two questions, and we'll look at this, and I know our time is quickly aspiring, um, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but I do want us to get our minds around really applying this so that we understand it better. The first question is, well, what exactly is faithful teaching? So we've been looking at that we need faithful teaching so that we'll have his joy, and then that will lead to strength, and well, what exactly is it? What are the elements? Well, it's in this text. The first one is reading the Word. And so faithful teaching begins with reading. You have to read the Word, which is why it says Ezra just read. And so faithful teaching must begin with reading it. If, if you ever hear a sermon, the Bible's not read, that is not faithful teaching. It's not. Which is why we read it. Yes, the whole chapter, we read it. Why, in the same worship gathering earlier, one of our deacons, Hunter, read from John 17, reading the Word. The Word must be read. And you'll notice that the Scripture reading always corresponds to the sermon, but opposite testament. If I'm preaching in the Old Testament, we'll have a New Testament reading, or vice versa. But it's always the same theme, because God is the same, Old and New Testament. It all connects and points to Christ. And so we need to be reading it. The whole Bible, Old and New Testament, describes one theme. It's one story. 
And this one story is God rescuing his people from their sin through the Messiah so we can worship him. It's all about Jesus and being saved, being redeemed for his glory. So there is power in just reading it, and this is the foundation for it. So what about you? Do you read it? Do you hunger to read his word? Do you hunger to know God, to commune with him? If you're a follower of Jesus and you don't hunger to read his word, you're not healthy. I'm not saying you're lost. You are a believer. I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm saying if there's no hunger for it, then there's something that is distracting you, something that has taken over, and so you need to really soul search and see, well, what's going on inside of me? Why do I not hunger for the Word and hunger to be close to God, to know Him? We must read the Word. Number two, faithful preaching, second element, is explaining the Word. So you read it, and then it has to be explained. So Ezra read, and the Levites helped to explain it to the people. Which is why our church focuses on expositional preaching. All that means is that it's preaching that exposes God's word, that reveals it, makes it plain. So expositional preaching seeks to take a text, read it, explain it, and then apply the meaning to the life of the church. So that's why we always study books of the Bible. Like right now, Ezra and Nehemiah, we study them in context. Not verses just that you just pull out of context, but you have to read it in its context. And so the point of the biblical text is the point of the sermon. It has to be. So a sermon should have a point. Like, it hopefully it has a point. Otherwise, what are we doing? It's random. And so, but the point of the sermon should be point of the text. And so for those who think that preaching maybe is unimportant or archaic, or, you know, it's just not, it's unnecessary because there's those that are getting loud in segments of Christianity that are saying preaching is not necessary. Well, look at this, which you see here in Nehemiah 8. You have a wooden platform, spiritual leaders standing on it, reading and explaining the word to the, the congregation while they're attentively listening. Well, what does that sound like to you? It sounds an awful lot like what we do today. Preaching is not a 21st century construct. Preaching is ancient. It was rooted in, in this Jewish context. It's God's idea. It's not like we came up with this on let's gather and sing his praises and hear his word read and explain. This is not our idea. This is God's idea. And so when we gather together, we're following what his word has revealed. And so what is preaching? This is, this is my philosophy, and this is from Nehemiah 8. Preaching, three words. You read, explain, repeat. That's preaching. You, you read it, you explain it, and you do it again. You repeat until you've exhausted the text. You, the text is done, sermon is done, hopefully in about 45 minutes. We have to have the word explained to us. And this is how God transforms our lives, hearing from him. Do you have a soft heart where you yearn to have the word explained? 
do you really desire that? Or do you find yourself kind of resistant and not really wanting to receive it? The third element of faithful teaching is understanding the word. So it has to be read, explained, and then, of course, understood. Verse 12, it says, there was great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words. So faithful teaching, preaching has to result in understanding of the word because that's how we know God. And so they read it, explained it, and then it was understood. And this is how God then shapes our lives is when this is happening in our lives. And it leads to really enjoying God. So next question as we're moving on. So that's the elements of faithful teaching. Next one is, what is the result? So what actually happens when we have faithful teaching? And the text also reveals that. So number one, the first result of faithful teaching is brokenness over sin. So when we have good teaching where it's read, explained, and understood through the power of the Spirit, it results, number one, in having a brokenness over our sin. When they heard God's word, the response was just mourning and weeping. Now, I understand that. I can relate to that. That makes sense to me. But Nehemiah's response did not make sense to me. When I sat down and I was really pouring over and studying this text on Sunday afternoon, I honestly, full disclosure, I was stumped. Now, I believe God's word. I submit myself to it. I don't question it. I want to understand it. I did not understand this at all. I was like, God, what are you revealing here? They're broken over their sin. They heard your word. They're responding with brokenness, with repentance. And Nehemiah says, no, stop it. Go eat good food. Go celebrate. Stop your mourning. And the Levites say, be quiet. Like that's the language. Stop your whining. Stop what I understood. Stop repenting and rejoice. And I thought, God, what are you saying here? So I go to the commentaries. They're not helpful. Like, none of them was asking the question that I was asking. So I, I was just left with my Bible and, and thinking and pondering this. And I thought of, for example, in Acts 3, verses 19 and 20, when Peter is preaching. And he says, return, turn away from your sin and repent so that you will have refreshing. And I thought, well, that makes sense. You repent and then you have joy. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, no, don't repent. Have joy. We'll mourn later. We'll repent later. Which, by the way, he does. This is for next week. But chapters 9 and 10 is all about their repentance and their response to that. And so I was honestly stuck on this, him saying, focus on God's glory and on joy and not on your sin. Let's go to the next result to piece this together and understand what God's revealing here. So the first result indeed is brokenness over sin. The second result of faithful teaching is great joy. We see this great joy, rejoicing. So when we have faithful teaching, it leads to joy. So Nehemiah says, stop feeling guilty over your sin. Stop mourning because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, here's the assumption that Nehemiah is making correctly by God's Spirit inspiring him. The assumption is that we all need strength. He's assuming that, that we all need strength. 
So we all experience deep pain. We all experience disappointment. We all experience loss. We all struggle. All, all of us are desperate for joy, but we need strength to get there. And so, again, if we're being honest with ourselves, being truly deep inside, satisfied with Jesus is a constant struggle. It is. And if, and if you're telling me that it's not, I don't believe you because we're all sinners. And we're not glorified yet. So we constantly have idols that would want to take away our joy from Christ and find our joy in other things. And we're a broken people in a broken world. But God has promised to fully satisfy us and to give us eternal joy. But we're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. And so we need tender love of God because we're all truly desperate for his mercy. So joy in Christ that we experience here on this side of heaven is simply a sample. It is a foretaste. It is the appetizer before the meal. And so when we're enjoying Christ, the Spirit, right here on this side of heaven, it is a foretaste of what we're going to have when they will see him as he is, and we're going to be glorified. And yet this foretaste that we have today is real. We do have his real presence, his spirit in us, and that's real. So yes, your struggles are real, but the loving grace of God is just as real. It's real. God loves you, and he wants you to know him. God does not condemn you. He doesn't. Because Jesus was already condemned in your place. Jesus paid it all. He already experienced your condemnation in your place. And so Nehemiah 8 is pointing to the truth that before you can truly repent before God, you have to know that he deeply loves you. Before you can repent, you have to know that God has grace, and he's for, he offers forgiveness because Jesus already paid it. And so you struggle, and you struggle, and maybe, and you keep on struggling, and God, I don't even know how, but he still loves us. It's overwhelming. I'm talking to my wife about this, and we're talking about Jesus with the disciples, and they're such boneheads. And I think, well, I'm the bonehead just as much as they were. And they never got it. Can you imagine what Jesus went through hanging out with these, these clowns? No, they weren't even clowns. They were who God chose to bring his salvation into the world to be the proclaimers of the gospel. And we're as thick-headed as they were. And Jesus kept loving them. And he continues to love you. And he calls you deeper still into his love. Knowing God, of course, through his word will allow you to see that he is merciful and that he just wants you to enjoy him and to have true joy. And when you know that God loves you 
and that the price has been paid and there's mercy for you, that gives you hope and confidence to come clean, to be honest about your pains, the deep ones, and about your struggles. See, this is why Nehemiah says, rejoice, know God. Let's study his word first and let's know him and see his mercy and then you'll be in the right place to repent in a couple of weeks. So before you're even ready to repent, let's just see how amazing God is. And it'll lead to more genuine repentance. If someone is lost in their sin and is addicted and is struggling, and you say, repent, and they say, well, I kind of enjoy my sin. I'm having a good time with it. And then are you going to repent? Well, if they see that there's greater love and greater joy available to them, the person of Jesus, they'll say, you know what, I do want to turn away. I see more worth in Christ, and so I'll turn away from this sin because I'm going to get it so much better. And he calls us. His kindness draws us to himself. Having a satisfied soul is designed to reflect the worth of God. So knowing God, seeing his infinite value, and then rejoicing in it. So your joy, if it's great or if, you, if your joy is very small and just like kind of tiny, shows the degree that you know God. So, for example, if you have great joy in all circumstances, even the painful ones, and you still have joy in Christ, that's proclaiming that you know God. If, if you have very small joy in your life, you just know joy in the life God's given to you, that's evidence that your soul needs to draw near to God. We read John 17 earlier. Jesus says, I've given them my words that you gave me. They have received them. He says, I speak them. So he's speaking his words. Why? That they may have my joy. Knowing him through his word, seeing the grace, the mercy that he has for you is what leads to joy. So joy that reflects the glory of God flows from knowing him and seeing how glorious he is. So if you're ever going to enjoy God, you must know him first. So we seek him in his word. And lastly, as we close, the last result is spiritual strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is power. Joy knowing that we're forgiven, accepted, that we have God's approval. Sin has been conquered. We have hope. We turn to Christ, and we find true hope. So joy in God is our strength, and his spirit helps us. He has called us to be his own and to have joy in it. If you're here today, and you have never given your life to Christ, you can do so today. I encourage you to come speak to me. I love to pray with you so you can experience his joy. His joy of truly knowing him. Will you pray with me? Father, truly you are a good, good father. And we are so humble that you would love us, even though we so do not deserve anything good from you. 
And seeing your goodness and your grace is what propels us to leave our idols and run to you in repentance. And so help us to see more of your beauty and glory and to know that you accept us. Help us to truly live for your pleasure. Help us to be a church focused on your word, that we read it, we understand it, we love it, we submit ourselves to it and reflect it to this remarkable city. We praise you and we ask that you would was more of your presence for we're desperate for it, for it leads to joy and strength. And we pray in the name of our first love, Jesus. Amen.